Yeah, I'm very thirsty this morning, apparently. It's good. I think that's the quietest I've ever heard the kids leave the room. <laughs> Man, they were like tiptoed out of here. Yeah, I know. If, if only my kids did that at home. Anyway, good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, if you haven't been with us, uh, we have been going through a series in the book of Ephesians. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, it starts on page 814, and we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, uh, looking at verses 19 to 22. Um, and, and we're calling this series This Beautiful Mess. And the reason that we're doing that is kind of a provocative title, I know, but th- the reason really is because Paul is talking about what it means to be the church throughout the book of Ephesians. And we're using this as a way to kind of rediscover who our identity is as a church and the things that we should be about together. Um, and one of the things that you find is that to be the church means that God rescues you from the messiness of your life and your sin and your brokenness, and He makes you beautiful. First, He declares that you're something beautiful even before you are. So those of you who have been baptized... Um, that is a picture of God's work over you. That when you get into the water and you go down and you come up, as we celebrated on Easter Sunday and, and several of you um, were in the water, um, you, you, it's, it's a picture of that process at work. That before we do anything as a believer in Jesus, God makes us something. He makes us His children. He makes us His disciples. He makes us His missionaries. And that's before we ever do a single thing. He just declares that it's so. And because of the work of Jesus on our behalf, it's so. And then, so, so we're declared to be something beautiful. And then the rest of our lives is, the, is, is kind of God's work to make us in reality what we already have been declared to be uh, conditionally. That our condition has changed forever. But the reality of that is that we still live very messy lives. Very, We still live out of the brokenness of our sin. And God, by His grace, is cleaning us up and He's making us a beautiful picture of His love and His grace to the world. So that we would be a display of what He's like. And that's that's the church. That's what it means to be part of the church. Um, and And so today, this morning is a short section. We're only going to look at, at three verses, um, but or four verses, but it's packed with things that we need to understand about what it is to be the church and who we are. So let's look at that together. Uh, verses 19 to 22, it says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. That's who we are. So, so here's what I want to break it down a little bit for us to tackle three ideas within this passage. Because Paul, what he's doing is he's, he's going to talk about who we were before coming to know him, before coming to know God, who we are now, and then how do we grow to become who we are. Remember I said God makes you something by his declaration. He says you are something now. And now we spend the rest of our lives growing to become what we are. So who were we, who are we, and who are we becoming? So let's talk about who we were. Verse 19 says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. A foreigner was really just someone who finds themselves outside of their native culture. Um, They're in a place in a land where they don't know uh, the, the government, they don't know the system, they don't know the language, they don't have many friends, they don't have community. And if you've ever been through an experience like that, 
what do you think that feels like? To be a real outsider, a foreigner. Like a fish out of water. Yeah, like a fish out of water, like you don't belong. What else? Lonely. Incredibly lonely. Paranoid. Paranoid, yeah. Yeah, suspicious of everybody and everything. Um, you probably don't have a whole lot of optimism. Yeah. Unwelcome. Unwelcome. Yeah, like you, you just, you don't belong there. People aren't welcoming to you. Yeah, like, like may, you do have a home somewhere and, and you're homesick. Right? Which is just you wanting to be back in the place where you belong most anywhere in the world. I mean, does it seem like a fun experience to be a foreigner, an alien, an outsider, a stranger? It doesn't. I've, yeah. You wouldn't know anything about this, would you, Andy? Yeah. 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 It's a very, very difficult position to be in. I, I haven't been in that position personally, but I have friends like Andy and others who've walked through this and I've had the opportunity to even walk through with people who are native to this land, but even the government hasn't treated them as though they're native to this land. And the, the, the experience is incredibly lonely. Incredibly lonely. Now, who are they talking... I mean, who's Paul talking to here? Because he's saying, you were foreigners. Back in verse 12, if you remember, we covered this last week, it says... This to, to this group of people, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, the people that Paul is talking to weren't literal foreigners. They were, by and large, Roman citizens. They were in the culture that they had grown up in. And they were with the families that they've grown up in. And yet Paul is saying to these people that are part of the culture that they've always been a part of, you are foreigners. Why? It's because they were foreigners not to their country, they were foreigners to God. They were foreigners to the hope that comes with God in the world. You see, and what Paul's saying is, no matter where you grew up, no matter what culture you happen to be in, even if it's the one that you're most comfortable in, you are a stranger in one sense of the word. Maybe in the biggest sense. You're a foreigner. You're an outsider. And until something happens to you, you will always be an outsider. Now, what is that thing that has to happen to you? Moses says this in Psalm 90, verse 1. About God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Do you know what he's saying there? You're our home. You're our native land. You're where, when I'm with you, I no longer feel like an outsider, like an outcast. See, Paul is saying until we're in a relationship with Jesus, we are not home. The, the biblical picture of that is that we are exiles. We are wandering through a land that is not our own. We're homeless. Because, think of it this way, I mean, we live in a world that does not fit our deepest desires, our deepest needs, our deepest longings. And home is the place where it fits you and you fit it, Right? Home should be the place where everything is tailored to your needs, where when you're in that environment, you feel like where you're supposed to be. And what Paul is saying is, until you find that home with him, you'll always be without home. We're out of place, is the other way to say it. Um, And the experience of being out of place is radical loneliness. Um, There was a recent poll that, uh, that came out, the market research firm Ipsos did a 20-question qu- survey and it asked 
thousands of people uh, about questions regarding loneliness. And it asked them whether or not they agree with statements such as, there is no one that I can turn to, or I feel like I'm a part of a group of friends. And what they discovered is that the average scores that they were seeing from the survey suggested that loneliness in our country is reaching epidemic levels. Epidemic levels. That 43% of the population qualifies as significantly lonely. Do you know the highest subgroup population in our country? The, the, the demographic that experiences the most loneliness out of any group? Can you guess? Teenage, yeah, not far off. 18 to 22 year olds. Which doesn't square to me, because you think when you're in college, you develop some of the best friends that you ever have in your life, and yet research is saying that people that are coming now up through their college years and now into their 20s are, is, are the loneliest generation that we've ever had. And they don't expect that to get better. They only expect that to get worse. Over half the population in that age bracket experiences severe loneliness. And, and it's not just, you go, oh, oh well, you know, like, we're Americans, right? We're individualistic. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get a job, things will work out, don't worry, just, you know, make money and be happy, get that apartment that you always wanted and the stuff that you always dreamed about, just go after the American dream and everything will work out. And, and the researchers are saying, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Because we're wired for community. And so when, when we don't experience that and we experience significant levels of loneliness, it doesn't just have a psychological impact. It impacts our mental, physical, and emotional well-being across the board. In fact, one of the, the health risks that they identified is that significant loneliness has the same effect on mortality as smoking 16, 15 cigarettes a day. We know, because of decades of research, the, the impact that smoking has on individuals and how that shortens one's lifespan. And what research is telling us now is that that same effect is happening for people that are significantly lonely. And, oh, by the way, over half of the population is experiencing that reality. In that <laughs> I, I can tell you some theological reasons why. We're going to get into that, but... The article that I read didn't say why. Why, what, why the effect happens. They just know that it has a correlation on our physical health yeah. and decreases life expectancy. I think part of what you just said. Yeah, we've been told. I mean, we've been sold a lie. We've bought it and we live out of it and the effects are enormous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we talked about that last week, right? That actually, in Christ, our, our need to seek an identity that's secure is taken care of in a moment because of the work of Jesus. So now, when we look around at our coworkers, at our neighbors, they're no longer a competition. They're, they're people with whom we share a deep need for the work of God in our life. They don't, you know, so it levels the playing field and we no longer have this tendency towards isolation because of competition, but now we realize that we are more alike than we are different with everybody that's around us. So that's one effect of the gospel. But, I mean, it, it, it shows us, really does, that all of us are, tr- are really trying desperately to fill a void that God made to fill only with himself and a community that's centered around him. And so... When we, even as Americans, try to fit that void with other things, and, I mean, generations are finding new and more technologically advanced ways to do that than ever before through their work and their travel and their social media use and their entertainment. I mean, all those things are true of me as well as them. They're just better at it than I am. But even when we we try to fill it with those kinds of things, it only increases or mass over our sense of homelessness. 
And we can fool ourselves for a while, but you know that you're made for more, don't you? And every human does because they're made in the image of God. We're made for perfect love that never, ever fails or goes away. We're we're made for a family experience that never lets us down. We're built to have meaning and purpose in this world that that gives us a sense of wonder and and a sense of accomplishment. We're, We're built for security. That we wouldn't have to question what what our identity is or where our provision is coming from. And what happens is eventually when we're without God, the knowledge of what we don't have, because we're looking to imitations, it catches up with you. And the result is deep, this deep sense that we are homeless, alienated, and above all else, lonely. Paul's saying is, apart from Christ, this is what we all were. No exceptions. Which means, now think of the positive, think of the, the flip side of that, that in Christ, that experience no longer has to be your experience. Because something has been done to you. There is a way out. There is a home for you. There's an alternative to the narrative that our culture is feeding us that only leads us to isolation and loneliness. There's something more for us. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because Paul says, guess what? You're no longer these things. This is no longer the definition of who you are. You were foreigners, but you're no longer. So what are we now? What's, what changed? What happened to us? We're told in Christ that we are now fellow citizens. We're part of a new nation, a new people, under a new king that leads to a better life, that we're, a new, that we're fellow citizens, that we're members of God's household. We're his family. We're sons and daughters. And third, that we are a temple. We're stones in a temple. We're God's dwelling place where he shows off his glory to the world. Paul is saying this is who we are now because of God's work if we're in Christ. And it's true of you no matter how you feel about it if you're in Christ. I mean, that's the amazing thing, right? No matter how lonely you may have felt walking through the door this morning, The reality of who you are overrides that. Your access to deep fellowship, community with the living God and with his family, his people, his temple, is available to you on your best day and it's available to you on your worst day. And it... It is true of you regardless of how well you're living the Christian life or how badly you failed at it. It is available to you no matter how much confidence you have in God and in the reality of who He is or how many doubts you bring to the table and how suspicious you are of who He is and what He's done for you. It's true of you no matter what. Because He doesn't change even though we change. That's who you are. Because who you are is not dependent on what you've done. It's dependent on who he, hit, who he is. And when you come to believe this good news about Jesus, when you're in a relationship with Him, then He has a greater power to shape your life than any other factor. Any other factor. Any nation that you might have come from, any ethnicity that you may be a part of, any family that you grew up in, so many people say, oh, I, I don't know if I can relate to God as a father because I've been so, part of such a broken family and I didn't have the best dad. Do you have more confidence in your earthly dad to define your relationships or do you have more confidence in a heavenly father who has the power of God to change you and make you new? Which one is it? What we're being told is that God has the ability if we tap into who we are. And that if we tap into who we are, we are being shaped, we're being molded together as new members 
of a new nation, a new family, a new temple to show the world what he's like. And this is how it works, Paul says in verse 22, that in him you two are being built together. You're being formed into a dwelling in which God can live by his spirit. That term to be built together means that that you're being shaped and molded, you're being conformed to fit into a new community. That you're more united to one another. That you have a common identity and a common commitment and a common purpose. And that you have it more now with the people who you are sitting among today than you have with the people that are of your same nationality, your same family, your same race, your same class, your same political party. You have more in common and you are bonded closer together with this as a family than any other family on earth. That's what we, when we celebrate communion, this is one of the reasons that we do it every week when we come to the tables and we break the bread and we dip it in the juice and we hold it up together and we pray for God to remind us of the truth of the gospel. That's what we're doing. We're declaring our oneness. We're declaring that we belong to one another, that we're committed to each other, that we have a a common purpose that God has sent us on, that we have a common love that we want to grow in for one another. That's what we're declaring when we do that. Now, if that's true, and that's what we're trying to celebrate when we celebrate communion, now think about what that means to be part of Cultivate Church. Let me ask you that, actually. What is this reality that you are molded into a new community? Citizens, family, temple of the Holy Spirit together. What does that mean, you think, for your participation in this community? What are the implications of that, if that's true? Yeah, we're one. What else? And think practically. Yeah. Not an option. Yeah. Yeah, because if this is who you are, is it is it reasonable to say that, that you can live out a sufficient reality of that identity by just showing up two out of four Sundays a month? How about three? What if you're really good and you show up four out of four, but you don't really know the people? You're not really committed. They don't know you or your story. You don't know them and their story. You're not, you're not experiencing the life of a family. There's a disconnect, right? Between who we are and how we're living. What else? Yeah. What's that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and, Many of us are part of that 43%. And I I would go so far as to say one of the reasons that we may be part of that percentage is because we're not living out who we are. We're not committed to a community of people. We just attend with them. I I mean, that's, that's why we say over and over again that language matters. And it really does. So when we say we're going to church or we're going to a service, we use that language and that language describes to us a picture by where we go to a building and we get something from a preacher or from music and then we leave and and our primary experience in it and how it relates to the church is that we are an individual who goes to consume from that place or that service and then we go back into our everyday lives and, and until the following week comes and then we come back to get a refill. That's why when we say when we talk about 
Cultivate Church, we talk about the fact that we are a family of disciples on mission, that, that what it means to be the church is that we are a community of people, not a building, not a service. Even when we gather, that as a family, we talk about it as a gathering as opposed to a service. And there's intentional reasons behind that change in language. Do you see it? Because one, I think, is more in line with who we, our identity is in Christ than the other. It's better to describe things as they actually are biblically, I think. And we need to try as hard as possible to, to do that more and more and more. Because language shapes reality. See, I, there's evidence of grace here. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I think as a church, you know, many of us are experiencing a deep connection and community with other people who share our same identity in Christ. We're, we share a deep commitment to one another and we share a common purpose. That's, that's going on. So I don't mean to just play up the bad and downplay the good. I think there's so much evidence of grace in our family of what God has taught us over the years. But he's not done with us yet. And as a, a follower of Jesus, God is calling you this morning. If you're in Christ... You cannot leave this room without the understanding that God is calling you into deep relationship with Him through a commitment to His body. If you haven't made that step of commitment, that's the big E on the eye chart this morning. Sorry, I had an eye exam, so I was just thinking about that this week. (laughs) That's the big takeaway. Now you might say, okay, well how deep? What does that look like? Deep enough that you experience a few things. And you're not going to like these things, I'm sorry. <laughs> you might. And those of you who have experienced him, you're going to say, yes, that, that has been my experience and I'm so thankful for it. But the first one is this, that we would experience community in that we are deeply, personally transparent with our community. Personally transparent with it. Because here's the thing, when you grow up in a family... How transparent can you be with your life? Now, I know when you have teenagers, they want to be very private and they will go into their bedroom and close the door and only come out when they're hungry or or have to go to the bathroom. I get that. But when you grow up in a family, you can't be trans you can't be anything but transparent. Cuz they're the people that you ate with and and slept with and played with and and They're the people who changed your diapers. They were the people who know you and your story, your strengths and your weaknesses, your quirks and your sins. So when Paul says that we're God's household, it begs the same question. Are we part of a community in which there is deep transparency and accountability? I'm part of a a group of people who know my story and who know the things that I struggle with the most, who have the authority to correct me and to rebuke me and hopefully encourage me when they see me falling into my old patterns again. In other words, I'm accountable to them. To be a family means you don't keep your faults and your struggles private. I'm sorry, you just don't. And if you are, then you're not living in line with who you are because who you are is God's household. Now, immediate, this is why I said you wouldn't like it because immediately you're like, I don't want to do that. That sounds really hard. That sounds really vulnerable. I mean, what if they, what if they reject me or, or shame me or they don't react in the way that I hope they might react? I just want to remind you the gospel says that your identity is not in your story. It's not in your struggles. It's not in your sin. It's not in who you've hurt or who's hurt you. It's all in what Jesus has done for you. And so that gives you a freedom. Because you're not the product of your bad choices anymore. You're the product of Jesus' good choices on your behalf, which means now you can share your bad choices with a community of people because you want help to become what you are. 
which is God's Son, holy and acceptable before God, able to stand before the throne of grace because of what he's done before you. God's done everything necessary for that to happen. Now, uh, the second thing would be hospitality. Hospitality with your whole life. Because what, is, what do families do? They don't, families don't just attend events together. They live life together. And so when you're in a family, you share each other's space. You, you share each other's things. You share meals. You share playtime. You share work. You share it all. Because in a family, you, you don't keep your faults and struggles private and you don't keep your things private anymore. It's, I mean, my, my Cultivate community jokes around about the fact that 75% of our group has lived with us <laughs> at one point or another. And it's true. Um, <laughs> but even if it weren't true, I mean, we hope to live the kind of life with them where they know that they have access to everything that's ours. That if we have a tool that they don't have, they have the right to it just as much as I have the right to it. Because God hasn't just given that tool to me, he's given it to me as a steward so that others might have what they don't have. Because we're all part of a family. And so if somebody doesn't have a home, if somebody doesn't have food, if somebody doesn't have a place to sleep, they do now. Because we're in the household. And brothers and sisters don't keep their stuff from one another. They share it. Now we're, we're trying to, you know, open up that reality to our kids. You want to talk about a struggle? Because they don't believe it. But we're constantly trying to tell them, look, like that toy is not just yours. I know, but it was given to me. Yeah, it was given to you, but it doesn't belong to you. Because anytime God gives us something, he retains ownership over it. Did you know that? The things that you have in your life, they've been given to you, but they still belong to him. And that goes down to the smallest toy. Which means when a, a brother, I was going to say a brother or sister, we don't have any sisters in our house, just boys. <laughs> but when we have sisters in Christ over to our house, they have just as much of a right to your toys as you do. Because we're in a family. That's what families do. So we, we don't keep our faults and struggles private. We don't keep our things private. And last, we don't keep our relationship with Jesus private anymore either. Uh, think of the imagery of a temple, right? That if we are a temple, all the stones fit together, and what happens when the stones are together? God's Spirit fills the temple. Which means, and this is so counterintuitive to our way of thinking as Americans, it means that God does not come down into you as an individual stone. You ever think of it that way? It's not like you're like a hollow little stone with like a this, you know, in, internal cavity and then God comes and and just comes into your individual little stone. No, you come together with all the stones and the stones together form a temple and that temple houses the Holy Spirit together. That's the imagery. He dwells in us together. Which means it's when we're praying together and worshiping together and sharing our hearts together and eating meals together and listening to the Spirit together. That's when we experience Him, right? It's when you open your, your, your life to people and you start to live it alongside of other people that you experience a filling that you didn't experience before on your own. I don't know about you, but all of the seasons of greatest growth for me as a disciple of Jesus have come as a byproduct of a healthy, gospel-centered community. I think of where 
gosh, where would I be if four months, it wasn't even that, three months after I became a believer in Jesus, March 1st, 2001, if three months later I didn't move into a household full of brothers and sisters in Christ? I don't know what my life would be like. I I wouldn't be standing here before you this morning if God hadn't done that work. The work to bring me into that kind of environment where I could see and live out my new identity in Christ was just as important as Him giving me that new identity on March 1st. Because apart from being in a community and sharing a relationship with Jesus with other people, I wouldn't be standing here this morning. So many of us want to keep our experience of God, our relationship to God, like a private matter. That it's something that you just do on your own. It's just me and Jesus all the way, you know? It's just us. But our faith was never intended to be private. Personal, yes. Private, no. And there's a difference between those two things. Uh, Philemon 1.6 says this, I've been waiting seven years to reference Philemon. I finally got to it this morning. It's amazing. (laughs) Paul says this to his brother Philemon. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for what? The full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The full knowledge of every good thing that you have in Christ is accessible only as you share your relationship with Jesus with other people who also share a relationship with Jesus. That's how you get in touch with everything that you have in Him. There's a very famous um, interaction with an a evangelist and Bible teacher named D.L. Moody who was visiting a prominent Chicago citizen and the idea of church involvement came up and the, and the man said to, to Dr. Moody, I believe you know, that I, I can be a good Christian, whatever that means. <laughs> I, don't even know. I, I can be just as good of a Christian on my own as I can be in a church. And, and that, that mentality is the mentality of American culture. You can be spiritual, you can have a relationship with God, you can do it all, and you can do it all on your own. You don't need an institution. By the way, I would agree with that statement. You don't need an institution, but you do need a family. But that's the mindset. I can do it on my own. And and it's interesting. So Dr. Moody, he he said nothing. Instead, he went and he moved to the fireplace because there was a blazing fire and it was cold out in the middle of winter. And he took the tongs and he took out one burning coal and he placed it on the hearth. And then the two men just watched the coal together as it went from burning red to pink to black. And the man said, I see. The truth is you can't know Jesus by yourself. You can't experience his power all by yourself. If you think you can, then you're in a relationship with a different God. You're not in relationship with Jesus because you were adopted into Jesus' family. And so that, that means that the deeper that you go into his community, the deeper you go into Jesus himself. Do you want that? Do you want that for yourself? Now, here's the reality on the flip side of that too. It means that you as a stone have a role to play in the, 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 the heat, so to speak, of another believer's walk with Jesus. That your place in the fire, sorry to mix metaphors here, your, your stone in the temple, your place in the household makes other brothers and sisters' place that much more beautiful. It means that certain people will not grow to all that God has for them to be apart from your participation in their life too. And that's the exciting thing. 
To be part of a family doesn't mean that just, you know, you grow because you have like one dad who speaks on a Sunday morning. You grow because you have brothers and sisters that are invested in you and you're invested in them and they grow because of you. That's exciting to me. I want to be part of a community like that. Are you keeping your faults and struggles private? Are you keeping your home and your things private? Are you keeping your relationship with Jesus private? If you are, please stop and think about who you are. Because you're only going to have the power of God in your life to the degree that you commit yourself, you invest yourself into Jesus' body, into his family. The way that we do that most consistently with our church family is through our Cultivate Communities. That we have groups, I believe we have six now, who are dotted all over the place. John mentioned the Palmyra one. Palmyra? Cinnaminson, thank you. Um, The Cinnaminson one before, there's Palmyra. Uh, I lead one, and Mandy leads one in Old Orchard and Cherry Hill. There's one we call the Cropwell Group that's kind of across the street, also in Cherry Hill. There's one in Marlton. There's one in Laurel Springs, correct? Is that where, that's where the, uh, we're hosting that one. They're around. And, and the, the purpose of them isn't just to be Bible studies. The purpose of them isn't just to be care groups, although we care and we study God's word together, the point is to be a family of disciples who's getting in touch with who we are. We're supporting one another and helping one another to become all that God has us to be. I mean, imagine what would happen if we took this seriously. I think it would look like what 20, verse 21 and 22 say, that in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. They, there's a reason that they built the temple on a hill. That it was built on top of the mountain that they called Zion. Because when you came into Jerusalem, you could see that thing from miles around. There was no question about where God lived by His Spirit. Because the moment you came within a 10-mile radius of Jerusalem, you go, yep, He's up there. That's where He lives. If I want to experience Him, I need to walk up that hill and get close to that temple. Do you know what Paul's saying? Look at the people sitting next to you. This is the community in South Jersey where God lives by His Spirit. This is the people that when, God, when, when people come within a 10-mile radius of this community, they should go, I'm in the presence of God. Tim Chester put it beautifully. He said, if the people in your neighborhood or in your city want to knock on the door of God, if they want to experience Him face to face, they should turn up at your door. That's who we are. We are sent ones. Now, most people, when I say something like that, they go, I, I don't feel like a missionary though. I don't feel like that's me. I don't feel like I'm a good picture. And no, you're not, and neither am I. Or we say something like, I, I don't want to share my whole life with other people, or it's hard to make these kinds of changes that you're talking about, or I, I don't see how to fit it into my schedule. And Paul really says that, that, that the, the prescription for that kind of mentality is that we need to know how to become who we already are. We talked about who we are. How do we become it? Because it, it can't just be through changing our calendar or through hard work or self-effort or positive thinking. There has to be a way to go about doing it. And the way that Paul says to go about doing it is that we, we fix our eyes on Jesus. That's how we become who we are. Because the church, Paul says, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
And Christ Jesus himself is the corner, is the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is being held and joined together. Now, what does that mean that he's the cornerstone? How do we, how do we tap into him as the cornerstone? The cornerstone of the temple was the perfect stone. It was usually the biggest stone and it was the stone that was laid first. And every other stone was both oriented to that stone and also shaped to fit with that stone. So that one comes first and every other stone comes second. And here's the thing. If you as a stone are shaped and molded so that you can butt up against the cornerstone, so that you fit with the cornerstone, guess what also happens by implication of that reality? Automatically, you fit with everyone else too. Because everybody's been shaped by the cornerstone. If you're in that building. And that means if you belong to Jesus then you have to ask, is my daily life being shaped by Jesus in everything that I think, say, and do? Because if, if you belong to Jesus, then, then He is your cornerstone. This means the only way that your life is going to make sense is if you're shaped by Him. And the way that you can know that that's happening is on a daily level, moment by moment. We've talked about this several times throughout this series, that you can hardly think, feel, or deal with problems, do anything without Jesus. That you would get part way into your day and go, wait, how have I just lived the last few hours without bringing him into this moment? God, where are you? You're right here. Okay, help me to walk with you. That all all throughout the day you would bring Jesus into the the major moments and the minor moments of your life. That that you would bring him into the major questions and the minor questions of your day. That you would be bringing things to him like, why am I angry? Why am I discouraged? Why am I afraid? How am I forgetting the good news of the gospel? How should I be interacting with this person, my coworker, my spouse, my kids? Am I doing it with you or am I doing it without you? If I'm doing it without you, I'm not being shaped by you. God, I want you in. Come into this moment. See, if, if Jesus is someone that you only think about once a week, then you're not, you're not being shaped by him, which means you're not going to have the, the compulsion to go deep into his community because you, you won't feel bonded to them. But what happens when Jesus is the cornerstone? When he is the shaping factor of everything? Then you feel a fitting with other people that also want that reality more and more, don't you? And when you come together and you pray with those people and you eat with those people, you go, yeah, there is a bond. There is a commonality. There is a commitment with us. Because we all have him as our cornerstone and we want to encounter him as a family. And when that's happening, once a week's just not going to be enough for you. <laughs> you won't be able to just get your once a week fill and be okay. You'll want him. You'll desire him. You'll need him. And the more you re- realize that you need him, the more you'll look to a community to fan the flames of that reality every day. If you want that, then the key is you've got to make him your cornerstone. Now, how do you do that? Paul says that he's the cornerstone, but how do we make him the cornerstone? When Paul says he's the cornerstone, he's, he's referencing a teaching where the Messiah would be the, the, this shaping, molding influence for his community. And that that went back centuries to Isaiah, the prophet, and in the Psalms. And it finds its realization in Jesus. And when Peter's giving a sermon to the religious leaders of his day, and he's, he's sharing the gospel with them, he says this in Acts 4. He says, This Jesus is the stone that, you, that was rejected by, the, by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, Jesus, the chief cornerstone, saved us by being rejected himself. And this is what the prophets had predicted. Now here's what happens. When you understand this, when the Spirit reveals this to your heart and it becomes the, the, the big E on the eye chart that you can't get away from anymore, it empowers you to seek out deep community. Because here's how it works. In, in Ephesians, remember, it says that we are foreigners, but now we're part of God's family, that we've been given by God the most radical form of hospitality that the world has ever seen. That, that word hospitality, we talk about it a lot. It's philoxenia, and it, it means to love strangers. It's to love the, the strange people, the outsider, the marginalized, the lonely, the weirdos, the misfits, the people that don't fit, the people that you, you the, the stones that you would look at in a field and you go, those things could never come together and be any kind of building that would even stand up, let alone be the house that God would live in. But we've received God's hospitality, his philoxenia, which means he loved us like his own, even though we were strangers. And that's amazing because we're told that you and I were strangers to God and he brought us home. He, he paid the bill of our hospitality. Those of you who have been hospitable to people, you know that the cost of that experience is high, isn't it? It costs time. It costs you, you know, investing in the cleanliness of your home. It, it costs in terms of money for food. So that people have something to eat when they're, when they're among you, it's costly. But it, what we're being told is that the cost of any hospitality that we might give to other people is nothing compared to the cost of what it costs God to pay for us to bring us home. Because when Jesus came to earth, the one and only Son of God, he was homeless, he was isolated, he was lonely. And then at the end of his life on the cross, he's crucified. And where does it happen? Outside the city as a stranger, as a foreigner, as an isolated one, as the lonely one. See, he was the stone that was rejected by us all. He was forsaken. And the reason that that happened was so that God could bring us in. So that he could turn us who were foreigners into his family and make us new. So we deserve to be cast out. We deserve to be excluded. We deserve to be exiled for what we've done to his world. But God cast Jesus out. And Jesus experienced our radical loneliness so that we never need experience loneliness again. That's the gospel. And the truth is, if the Spirit shows you Jesus... And he shows you this cornerstone that's been rejected to make you part of his temple. And you believe that, then that becomes the central thing upon which your joy is based in this world. And not only is that going to change your relationship to him, which it will, but it'll, it'll turn you into somebody that wants to be in deep relationships with others so that you can share this Jesus and what he's doing in your heart. Right? And you also want to share that reality with the strangers and the foreigners to God that are in your life. And you'll never look at them the same way again. Because rather than having a disdain or an indifference towards people that are far from God, here's what will happen. You'll see them as they are because you knew that you were once them too. And you'll remember what God did for you and you'll want to do the same for them. This happened to me this week. We were invited to a family's home in our neighborhood. My son, Caleb, uh, is, is part of a group with um, another little boy. And his mom always brings uh, the little boy. And um, she and my wife got talking. And she, Mandy would tell you that she just, when somebody's like 
experiencing loneliness and even though you don't know them well, they just, you know that like, you sense that like you're their lifeline to something that they don't have, you know? And so she invited us over and we found out that it was the little boy's birthday. Um, And it was just us who we've just met this family and one other family that were there. And, And she had laid out like a whole meal for us and for her son and cake and pie and, 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 you know, all these things. And we just had an incredible time with them. But the whole time we're like, man, God is really doing something here. Because they would have never been the people that would have been on my radar. Because I tend to see, see the people that are, you know, maybe geographically closest to us or the people that, that look most like us which usually means they're really busy and they're, they're kind of covering over their loneliness with other things, which means they're not ready for a relationship. But this person was not that. They were just like, come into my home, come into our life. We want to we be in relationship with you. And um, we're sitting around eating and uh, the topic of church came up, as it usually does whenever I'm eating with anyone. <laughs> Uh, and Mandy goes, oh, you didn't, you didn't know that, that Jay was a pastor. And I'm like, would you stop? Because <laughs> here's what happened. I'm, you've never experienced this, but let me just let you in on my experience. Things are going well. We're, we're becoming friends. And then someone drops the P word. And then everything gets weird. It just does. People start treating you differently. And and one of the ways that they start treating you differently is that they immediately reach back in their mental registers for their spiritual credentials. And they, at the same time, reach back for the obstacles that keep them from realizing a, a kind of a full spiritual existence. Right? So on the one hand, kind of, you know, the, the stuff that comes out is like, oh yeah, back in my native country, I was, you know, in the Catholic Church and I was really involved and I did this and I did that. And man, I was the best one there was. That's the one hand. And then the other hand is, oh, but, you know, we're so busy ever since we've been here. You know, we, I would be this if it weren't for this. And they, and they're just like hoping that you'll like, be okay with them, like, you know, and not just immediately get up from the table and walk out, you know? Um, and, and which is always, I mean, as it, it, sometimes as uncomfortable it makes me, it's always a great opportunity because then you can remind people that God doesn't look at the externals. He looks at the heart. And it's not about what you've done for him. It's about what he wants to do for you. And that's Freedom. That's freedom for people that are clinging to their religious good works and, and constantly weighed down by the fact that they, they wish they could be who they can't be. And so, like, when, when she just started talking about, like, all the things that keep them as an obstacle from being part of a, a, a community, a family, a church on Sunday mornings, I said, well, let me stop you right there. Because, yeah, we, we do that as a church and it's really valuable. We get together and we hear from God's word and, you know, we sing. But I said, actually, you know what a, a large part of our experience as a church is? It's doing what we're doing right now. It's sitting around a meal as friends and family and it's talking about the good and the bad and it's being open and honest with our struggles as you've been with us because we know that we're covered by the blood of Jesus and we're okay in his eyes and so we can share life together and we can share a meal together and we can, we can encourage one another and build each other up without condemnation because of what Jesus has done for us. And that, I said that, that's one of the most valuable experiences and environments that we have as a church. In fact, there's one just down the street. So you're not obligated to come. I'm not pressing you for an invitation but just know that our door is always open to you. And she went, huh. 
I see. See, being a community gathered around Jesus that seeks after foreigners like us, that's, that's what life's about. That is the most attractive opportunity that comes across most people's weeks. It certainly did for her. That's who we are, family. Let's, by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, become who we are. Let's start it today. Father, we do thank you this morning that you've declared all these things to be true for us, though we were not walking in them. Thank you, Jesus, for being rejected for us so that weirdos, strangers, aliens and outsiders like us could have a family with you and a family with each other. If we're not experiencing that, God, convict us by the Spirit to make that reality ours today, to take a step in that direction. For those of us that are part of that experience, Give us eyes to see the foreigners and strangers around us that need this community. Would you do it for your glory so that we could be a temple on a hill shining your grace to the world. Amen.